Well, once again, we are continuing our study through the major covenants of the Bible. And uh, so far, we have seen how covenants, including relationships are are structured. Their covenants, rather, which are structured relationships, are a major theme in the Bible. And we've gone so far to say that they are, in fact, the backbone of the Bible. We began with the covenant at creation, where we saw how Adam and Eve transgressed by rebelling against God, and in doing so, brought down all the covenant curses upon them. But even amidst Despair and what seems like hopelessness, God instills hope for humanity and promises that somehow he's going to provide a seed, right? The seed of a man who will conquer the serpent and roll back the awful curse of death and thorns and pain. We studied the covenant of Noah, which we saw was primarily a covenant of preservation, where in spite of the incredible depravity of mankind, God, who have nothing but evil thoughts and evil intentions and wickedness in their hearts, that God has promised to graciously tolerate us for a while until he can complete his rescue mission of his elect. And in the meantime, we saw how God commissioned Noah to be sort of a new Adam, to go out and do what Adam failed to do, to create and spread humans who act like God, to fill the earth and multiply. We saw then the Abrahamic covenant where God called a pagan idolater into a special relationship with God. And instead of issuing curses, we see God issuing blessings. And learn that the curses which were caused by the sin of Adam and his family were somehow going to be reversed through Abraham's family. And tonight we make our way to the major covenant that God made with Moses, which is very big, very big. And a key text which you could uh, turn to if you like is Exodus chapter 19. We'll be all over the book of Exodus tonight. If you can't follow along by looking around, that's okay. I'd rather you hear the word and understand than see it. So uh, feel free to just listen. Um, But let me read Exodus 19, uh, one portion of this covenant, starting in verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God's word. Like many of you, I've had the chance to see the power of a covenant in the face of terrible disease, whether it be Alzheimer's or dementia or similar conditions that can put a real strain on relationships. And it's true for other life-altering diseases where perhaps a spouse may wake up one day and realize that because of disease, He doesn't seem to be married to the same person that he once was. 
I will never forget the testimony of my maternal grandfather and his faithfulness in marriage. While he patiently loved his wife during the final confusion-filled years of her life. I remember my mom telling me that one night my grandmother woke up screaming because there was a strange man in her bed. And it was my grandfather. And he patiently loved her. He didn't even flinch in his love for her. Sure, it hurt him, but for my grandfather, the covenant of marriage, the covenant love, was stronger than the effect of any disease. And as we study the covenant that God made with Israel tonight, we'll call it the covenant with Moses, the old covenant, the covenant with Israel, the covenant with Sinai, all the same thing. But as we study this covenant tonight, we are going to see that Israel is sick. Sick, terminally sick with the disease of sin. And just like people in the days of Noah, they have a diseased, wicked heart and are unable and unwilling to honor God. But God's love, God's covenant love is stronger than the disease of sin. And even though his covenant with Israel ends in tragic failure, God's love endures and God's love never fails. So let's consider some of the highlights of this complex covenant. And let's begin by thinking about the context. We need to think about how this covenant fits into the storyline of the Bible and what we've done so far. How does it relate to the covenants that came before? Is it an extension of Abraham's covenant down to Abraham's children or is it a whole new thing? Well, the answer is kind of both and, and as you can imagine, there's lots of bickering about this among people smarter than me. But on the one hand, it's, it's new, right? It's a distinct, separate thing. But at the same time, it's very closely related with God's covenant with Abraham. When God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he made it clear that Moses could and should relate to him in light of the Abrahamic covenant. He said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But at the same time, God also makes it clear that he rescued Israel because of his covenant with Abraham. In other words, he has fulfilled that covenant. And so even though God is doing something different, he is still acting graciously in the same way that he did with Abraham. The God of Abraham is going to be the God of Israel. But one of the clearest ways that we see this is in the timing of God's love and rescue of Israel. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. It's the kind of thing you don't notice if you don't think about the broad storyline. But God sets his grace upon Israel before they do anything right. He chose to adopt them and to love them before they obeyed him. Before God ever rescued Israel from Pharaoh, he actually called them his son. Flip over to Ephesians, or Exodus chapter 4. This, you've heard me talk about this a lot, but this is an important thing to see. This is one of those landmark verses in the Bible. Exodus 4 verse 22. So this is before the Exodus has taken place. And then it said, Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, 
Israel is my firstborn, say it with me, church, son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The timing here is important to God. Before God gives the Ten Commandments, he reminds them of this. It is God's adopting love by which he calls Israel his son. In Exodus chapter 19, which we just read, God said, this is before the Ten Commandments, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Do you see? He loved them before he saved them. And he loved them before they obeyed or disobeyed. Let's just pause here and make an application. I don't want to wait. Friends, we need to recognize that God's grace comes before his demands. Have you ever thought of that? God's grace comes before his demands. God has always been good to us before he requires anything of us. Now, I don't know about you and your upbringing, but it's very easy to be the kind of Christian who has perhaps its religion, this sense of you obey the rules and God likes you, or God likes you because you're Jesus, but you better obey those rules, or if you obey those rules, God will really like you. Rules, rules, rules. Don't break the rules. But God is good and gracious before he requires anything. This is true of Adam, it was true of Abraham, the pagan idolater, and it's true of all humanity, right? God's gracious character is baked into the very fabric of the created world. You don't and you can't do anything to earn God's favor. What did Adam do to earn God's favor before God placed him in a garden? Adam didn't, Noah didn't, Abraham didn't. And Israel didn't. God's very first actions toward his people is always love. It's love. This is how we are to see him. Friends, I want you to see, God wants you to see him as love. Love permeates all of his divine qualities, even his fierce wrath. This is why the Bible says that God is love. It is his very essence. So let me remind you, sinner, covered in the shame of your nakedness, hear this, God is love. And think about what this means. Since God is love and God is gracious, his love and his grace is always going to come before his demands. Is God a lawgiver? Yes, absolutely. But he is a gracious lawgiver. This is what the world fails to see. God is Lord, yes. He demands total obedience, yes. He is king, yes. But he is gracious in all these ways. Just think of the 10,000 blessings bestowed on Adam before God issued his one command. The same is true for Israel. God adopted them, and he delivered them, and he rescued them, 
Not because they obeyed or because they were good, but because he is good. And so when God issues the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, which we'll get to later, he begins by reminding them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. His demands come after his rescue. Isn't that pleasant? His demands, therefore, flow from a thoroughly proven, gracious heart. His commands are good for you. They're always good for you. In that moment of temptation, how precious is the clarity that reminds us sin is appealing right now, but God's word, his law, his commands, his restrictions are good. They are for your good. They will lead you to greater pleasure. Which means, friends, that when you obey God, you're leaning into his gracious heart. His law is kind and good. All this to say that God's covenant with Israel, in spite of its differences with Abraham and Noah and Adam, is still a gracious covenant. We might not call it a covenant of grace, but we must call it gracious. Because here we have God initiating relationship with sinners. But let's think about Israel's call. If you're still in Exodus 19, take a look down at verses 5 and 6 in just a moment. We need to note that this covenant was not made with the whole world, right? Not like Noah, but with a particular people, a distinct people, Israel. And God has a plan for the identity of the people that he has rescued. He says, now therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak. Now there's a couple important descriptions here that I want to think about. First is this language of a kingdom of priests. You see that? Now, the word kingdom, if you've been following along, should, should cause some bells to go off for you, right? It should make you think of some of God's earlier covenants, right? Especially God's covenant with Abraham. Do you remember? He promised, I will make you a great nation. Well, that's a lot like a kingdom, isn't it? The same thing with priests. What is it that priests do? Well, priests are mediators. Specifically, they are people who are close to God. And since they're close to God, they're able to mediate God's blessing. That's what a priest does. Now, that too should ring some bells for you. What is it that Adam was supposed to do? What is it that Noah was supposed to do as they reflected the image of God to the world? What purpose was it for that God wanted them to fill the world with his image? And is this not exactly what God told Abraham he would do? In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Priests distribute God's goodness to others. And that's what God has called Israel to do, to be a kingdom of priests. He's saying, Israel, you have the same job. Just as Abraham was a new Adam and Noah was a new Adam, so Israel is a sort of new Adam. Perhaps we could say Israel is a new humanity, the way humanity was supposed to be. And soon we'll see that God's plan for Israel is for them to represent God by living as his, you remember, 
son. A son is supposed to be like his father. That's why God called Israel son. They were to submit to his rule and show the world that it is a blessing to live under God's rule. Sure, their lives would be different. This is why God calls them a holy nation. Yeah, they would have dietary laws and Sabbath laws and sacrificial laws, but that was because they were to be separate, a distinct people, different from the world, so that their lives would be attractive. Do you see this dynamic? More importantly, do you experience this dynamic in your life? There are a couple dimensions of this, right? Do you live a life close to God? You can't mediate God's blessing if you're not close to Him. Do you live a life close to God? Do you live a life that is set apart, submitting to His rules, different from the world? And at the same time, is your life attractive? Do people look at you and see a joy, a happiness? Do people see something in you they want? I don't know how else to say it. Are you a holy and happy Christian? You must be both. That's God's purpose. It's hard to imagine a world being attracted to a God that is represented by a bunch of miserable, begrudging, cranky, worldly Christians. Now, I don't want to make you wait. I'm not going to do any cliffhangers tonight. Plus, we started late somehow. But hopefully, you'll see, hopefully you already know that the covenant with Israel fails. Or should we say Israel fails in the covenant with Israel. This helps us understand how all this connects with the new covenant, which we'll get to later in a couple weeks. And if I could just read for you, 1 Peter chapter 2. Just don't turn there, but just listen to these words. See if this sounds familiar. So God is speaking to the church. He says, you are a chosen race or a nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Does that sound familiar? I hope so. And do you see what God's doing? The covenant with Israel failed. And so God is fulfilling his purposes, the same purposes he's fulfilling them in the church. But he has to bring the new covenant to do it. Now, I'm not going to go into the technical details of how this covenant is structured. It's a little complicated, but let me just summarize it like this. You have God who is identified as the sovereign protector. He's the, the, he's the king in the covenant. And he initiates the covenant. And of course, he makes stipulations. Primarily the Ten Commandments. And there are clear blessings and curses like there are in all the covenants we've seen so far. If Israel obeys, they will enjoy blessing and prosperity and joy. But if they violate God's covenant, they will once again know curses and judgment. Now, before we look at the Ten Commandments, let's jump ahead and recognize that this covenant is inaugurated with blood sacrifice. And I'm trying to decide if I have time to do this. While I decide, I'm wasting the time that I could be doing it. If you've got to leave, you can leave. All right, flip over to Exodus 24, right? 
The beginning of Exodus 24 is a chapter that opens with, with a sense of, of tension. Even though God is confirming or ratifying or inaugurating this covenant with his people, they can't get near him. Now that doesn't sound very intimate, does it? Right? You've got this great covenant with God, but don't get near him, you'll die. God is committed, however, to making it work, which is why blood sacrifices come in. In verse 7, Moses reads the covenant and the people agree to keep their end of the covenant. But then the covenant is inaugurated with blood sacrifices, which means animals are slain, blood is in the air, death is in the air. The blood is then thrown on the altar, and then it's actually thrown, look at verse 8, onto the people themselves. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now why would he do this? It's because of sin. If sinners are going to enter into a relationship with the holy God, they need to be cleansed. They need to be shielded from the wrath of God. And in God's providence, blood is that provision. Blood can provide cleansing. And so God institutes with Israel a whole sacrificial system where the blood of someone or something else, the death of something else, can make a way for defiled people. It's a precious picture for us, isn't it? The CBR readings right now have us reading or slogging through the early chapters of Leviticus, which are all about these atoning sacrifices in which God establishes graciously a system for his dirty, needy people. And they end in this climax. There's all sorts of sacrifices, right? But they end in this climax of the Day of Atonement where God forgives all of Israel's sins. So what's the lesson for us here? It's that even in the Old Covenant, which would be disposed of, Even in the Old Covenant, we see God making provision for sin. We see that the covenant, in the covenant with Israel, God provides a way for Israel not only to enter into a relationship with God, but to maintain fellowship with God, even when they sin. Because I don't know about you, my problem is not just that I need to be entered into a relationship with God, but I need someone or something to keep me there because I still sin. And apparently, God is this kind of God. Oh, what good news this is for us sin-weary sinners. That God is not only willing to make provision for past sin so that we can enjoy fellowship with Him, but He is also willing to provide a way to maintain that fellowship with him. Friends, yes, sin will hinder the Christian's relationship with the Lord. Your sin will keep you from intimacy in your relationship with the Lord, but it does not have to ruin it because of God's grace. So run to him. We've already said that each covenant has obligations, and the obligations in this covenant are basically the Ten Commandments. 
And I want to think about those for just a few minutes because now that Israel has been rescued and saved by God, they are called to remember to be devoted to God, to go into the wilderness to worship him. They're, they are his special people. And how do they do that? Well, God says they will do this by keeping the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm persuaded that even though the law, so the first five books of the Bible, which we call, confusingly call the law, and then there's the law within the law, and you know, that sort of thing, and then Paul talks about the law in every conceivable way, but, but the, the law is broader than the Ten Commandments in the sense that there are, there's much more that is written. But I'm persuaded that the rest of the law, the rest of the content, Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, it's basically a explanation of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's an expounding of, a commentary on those primary covenant stipulations. Moses, it's interesting to note, never actually calls them the Ten Commandments. You want a piece of Bible trivia? The Bible actually does not call them the Ten Commandments. Literally, Moses called them the Ten Words. If you want to go look this up and see it, you can come talk to me. i got lots of references. But he called them the ten words. Now, scholars like to use that instead of the ten commandments because, as you might imagine, there's theological meaning there. They're not the ten commandments. They're the ten words. And the idea is that God spoke ten words to Israel. You can think of it like this. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Or God said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. God said that you shall not kill. You see? God said, God said. Now, can you think of any other place in the Bible so far? You've only got one chapter and plus 20 to choose, one book plus 20 to choose from. Any other place in the Bible where God speaks stuff into existence? Any other place where we have this repetition of and God said, and God said, and God said? Creation. Right. Is it not fitting that the God who speaks the universe into existence with his word goes on to create a new nation with his word? Is it not interesting that God uses his word to sustain and create his people? We could even say that the whole creation of God's people is utterly dependent upon his word and that they might live according to his word. The critical, a critical part of these ten words appears in the fourth commandment, which uh, establishes the priority of keeping the Sabbath holy. Now, in past covenants, we've seen how most covenants, and all the covenants so far, have a sign, right? They, they have a sign. We've seen that um, the Noahic covenant is the sign of a rainbow. The Abrahamic covenant, the sign of circumcision. Well, the Sabbath is the sign of the covenant with Israel. We're told that in Exodus chapter 31, verse 13, which might explain why this fourth commandment is the longest of all the commandments. There's more detail about it. And in the rest of the Pentateuch, in the rest of the first five books of the Bible, there's a lot of explanation given to the fourth commandment. Now, the Sabbath signifies many important things, which we can't go all into tonight. Maybe we'll do that later. And not least of it is that these are God's people. Right? God has 
called them, rescued them, saved them, adopted them, and now he has consecrated them for himself. So it's fitting that they should devote a whole day to worshiping him. But perhaps another thing this signifies is this. God is calling them to enter into his rest. We see once again God inviting his people to enter back into his rest. You'll remember that at creation, each of the first six days had a morning and an evening, right? It was evening and morning the third day. Until we get to the seventh day, where we read, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, I know I only read one verse, but you can go look. You'll notice that God does not say anything about an evening. Could it be? The, the, The idea is that it's still going on. Could it be that God is, God was resting and he's still resting? Right? The idea is not like tiredness, but completion. Could it be that God is still resting? You see, when Adam sinned, think about the curse. Part of his curse was that he would be marked by toil. You ever wondered why that's like part of it? Like what's the big deal about working the ground? There's a lot of things in life that are hard that seem harder than work. I mean, work is hard. I mean, not for me because my work is great. But your work, (laughs) your work is hard. Why is this mentioned? The Bible says it is in pain that man shall eat of the ground all the days of his life. Yet God is at rest. You remember Jesus, who was quick to invite weary sinners into his rest. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Sabbath rest. Friends, we were made for the garden. We were made for life in the garden with God. We were not made for thorns and toil and death. That's why it's it's so unnatural. We were made for life and joy and rest. The Sabbath reminds us that true rest is found in God alone. And there remains for God's people a Sabbath rest. So let me remind you now, and we can talk about applications to the Sabbath later, but let me remind you now, nothing else especially not money, which you, when you set aside work, you're acknowledging this for a day. Especially not money. Nothing can satisfy your soul. Nothing but God. You were made and your heart is restless until you find rest in Him, Augustine said. Now, we don't have much more time to look at this tonight, but it's important to note that, as you probably know, the story is full of failures, right? Of, of, of covenant failures. And so, in the prophets, God sues Israel. There's suing language. He raises up prophets to deliver these sobering messages. And because of sin, we see that Israel has to renew the covenant again and again. Some people say, well, there's like dozens of covenants. But they're missing the point that it's a renewal, a recommitment of this same covenant. Moses renews it with the new generation in Deuteronomy 29. Joshua renews it before he goes in to the promised land. Josiah renews it when they lost the book of the covenant. But you'll notice the covenant eventually 
fails. It does not last. Unlike the covenant with Abraham and Noah, there is no promise here of ultimate fulfillment. That is so important. Right? We need to distinguish the covenants in the Bible. It's the big point of this series. And you need to notice this. There is no promise of ultimate fulfillment. We have no promise that the covenant with Israel would endure. In fact, we have the prediction. When God predicts things, it's really just like God saying it's going to happen. But we have the prediction of the failure. There's multiple times that this happens. There's a strong note of covenant pessimism. Right before Moses died at the very end of Deuteronomy, he's basically pleading with them to obey the covenant and to keep God's law, but then he tells them, you're not going to do it. And you're going to have all the curses come down upon you. And Israel just wouldn't, and in fact, they couldn't keep the covenant. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29. I want you to see this verse. It's disturbing a little. Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. Speaking of the covenant, Moses said this. Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand. Or eyes to see or ears to hear. Man, that's discouraging. Do this, but you won't. Do this, but you can't. How does that work? You see, there's a major weakness in the old covenant. This covenant was certainly kind, and it was certainly gracious. And the weakness is not in the covenant itself, but it's in Israel's inability to keep it. This text says that God had not given them the heart needed to keep the covenant. They had bad hearts. Of course, the problem isn't with God. It's never with God. The problem's not with the covenant. The problem is with the sinners, the covenant breakers. The law, the old law, just was not enough. It could not produce life. It could not change hearts. The children of Adam have bad hearts. We're like the tin man walking around with, without a heart that works. Because our old hearts continually devise and continually desire evil. A new covenant with a provision for a new heart is needed. A better covenant is needed. New hearts are needed. New birth is needed. An obedient son is needed. So now we can understand this confusing verse when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think I have come to abolish the law, okay, this covenant, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. Matthew five seventeen. Now, make no mistake about it. The ten words, right, the old covenant, are perfect. They reveal 
clearly God's character. They establish the righteousness of God, and that never changes. That is not abolished. It is not that, it is not that God's character was displayed poorly or that God's character has changed. Instead, what it says is that Christ fulfills the law and makes it obsolete. Does that word make you nervous? It makes me nervous, and then I always have to remember, oh, that's the exact word that Hebrews uses in Hebrews chapter 8. In speaking of, I'm reading God's word, 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You see, when Jesus came, he fulfilled all of the covenant with Israel. Jesus was the faithful, obedient son. Jesus was the obedient Israel. The one who obeyed, the one who always reflected the true image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He always showed what God was like by keeping the ten words. And Jesus brought a new covenant and a whole wagon full of new hearts. And for those who are united to Christ by faith, the Spirit of God comes and dwells, that new, dwells in that new heart, giving us the ability to obey and the desire to obey and the desire to understand. This is what God does. We can marvel and how God has provided for us in this new covenant. But we must certainly understand how his grace has worked in the past. And I hope that tonight has helped you, even though it's very introductory, in thinking about how God has worked graciously with Israel. Let me close this in prayer. Father, help us to see that you've accomplished all that we cannot accomplish on our own. Help us to walk in step with your Spirit knowing that out of our heart comes all sorts of fruit. And let us display the fruit of the Spirit. And let us show the world and live a life that is attractive to all, that they might see and know that you are the King, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, and the God of Abraham. Help us to honor you and reflect you well. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.